Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today we're going to go over en route casualty care. And uh, today I'm with Paul, which needs no introduction, but the, the, our special guest is Nikki. Uh, if you could just uh, introduce yourself a little bit, please. Hi, so I uh, joined the Navy way back in 1995. Um, started out as a, a corpsman and then went search and rescue corpsman for about seven years and then uh, did a commissioning program to become a nurse, went to school for my BSN and am now a nurse. Uh, for the Navy. I've served with the Marines uh, on the ship um, in, in various different operational environments and I've deployed in those those uh, positions. So I have a little bit of experience. My whole career has kind of been around flying. When I was a search and rescue corpsman, we were on helicopters and then as a nurse when I was deployed, I was always around helicopters and uh, my last duty station, which with the Marines, I created a in route care training for my equipment and for my nurses so just outstanding um if you don't mind me asking how why did you why did you feel the need to start a course like this i started it because when i was in afghanistan myself i found myself doing in route care training or in route care missions without really the proper training so i was pretty junior nurse uh was an ICU nurse, quote unquote, didn't have a lot of experience in a busy, high acuity ICU, but was considered one in the Navy's eyes because I was in, a, uh, in an ICU, in a medium command. Um, so not a lot of experience, found myself on the back of a helicopter with very critical patients on vents and blood and drips and you know all kinds of different medications that I wasn't completely familiar with and I decided I did not like being in that position and I didn't think it was right to have us out there training or doing missions without the training. So I made it my own mission to come back and train anybody who wanted that kind of training. And then my last duty station, my commanding officer was very supportive with it and wanted me to create something for our medical battalion because we still had deployment task groups and we're still sending people and that possibility of doing in route care is, is pretty high. So. I wanted to make sure that you know I could take all of my experiences and my lessons learned and create something where I can train the nurses and the corpsmen to do that job. Oh, outstanding, uh, and that's exactly why we have you here on the podcast. Um, so, just jumping into it uh, from your experiences, what I guess what uh, problem areas or what are common mistakes that people make? when they're preparing a patient for flight? The common mistakes are the planning. I would say that the, the pre-flight assessment is huge. So you have to know what kind of patient you have, what you're dealing with, um, making sure you get a good handover report from whoever you're taking it from. So whether it's a ground person or um, they've been, you know, if the patient's been in a, a prolonged field care situation, you know, what those people have done for him. Um, or if you're going from a role two to a role three, which was more our common, our bread and butter. 
Um, you got to know what happened to the patient, what's going on with them, what interventions were done, and then you have to do your own assessment and make sure that you're staying ahead of the curve. So you want to not only look at your patient and see that, okay, they're stable right now, but what could possibly go wrong? So if they're vented, what can go wrong in the aircraft? You know, they have breathing issues. How do you stay two steps ahead of that? How do you plan for that? And what equipment do I need to bring to take care of them once I'm in the helicopter? in a very demanding, stressful environment with no resources and nobody else around me. So that's one of the big things. And then packaging them appropriately for that environment. So, you know, we always talk about that heat loss and the hypothermia. So you gotta make sure, you know, once you're in the aircraft and you go up in, in elevation, it gets colder. So you gotta really plan for being able to keep them warm. And then all of your lines have to be in order. You have to know where they are. You have to have easy access to them. Uh, your vent tubing, if they're vented, you know, has to be um, not hanging out loose and, and flopping around everywhere when you approach the aircraft because any little thing, you know, if it, your IV line comes loose or if you have an art line that comes loose and you don't realize it and now they're bleeding out <laughs> into their their apples or whatever and, you know, now you have a, a, a hypolemic situation that you caused and totally preventable. So making sure your lines are in order is... is you know, one of the higher priorities. Um, and then just planning to be flexible because for us in the, the Marine Corps and Navy, we don't have aircraft that are set up for medevac. So we have to be able to, you know, if I thought maybe I was gonna position the patient one way on the aircraft, it could change as soon as I get on there just based on if the crew chief wants me to be somewhere else. So I have to be flexible, be able to, you know, handle my monitors or turn them or do whatever I need to do. Um, so I can still take good care of that patient. Are there ever times when you have to advocate for your patient uh, against what that crew chief wants? There could be times because the crew chief doesn't have medical experience. So they're just thinking, they're, the way they think is, you know, what's easier for the crew right now? So if I have them in the back corner or something, that's going to be easier. If they have to load patients on and off, you know, how is that um, going to be easier for them? Whereas that might not be do well for my patient. So. I'll have that conversation with them. Um, and usually, you know, they understand once I explain it to them, but there is always that chance that they're just like, no, just get on the bird. And, and a lot of times we don't have, we don't have time to argue about this. So again, I just have to be flexible and figure it out and, and know that, you know, might not be the best situation or the best positioning, but I gotta overcome that, so. Right. So, I mean, it definitely is a balance between, um, you know, packaging the patient and gaining access. So you want to keep them covered up, you want all your equipment right there, but you also have to get easy access to right. the airway, to IV lines, etc., etc. So is there any any principles that you go by, or any, any techniques that you use to make sure that you will always have access? Well, one of the nice things, we, we like to use the apples, which is the brown, kind of, it looks like a, well, it came from the idea of using a body bag and cutting out the face for it and then somebody came back and, and created what is kind of like a body bag or a sleeping bag. Um, but what's nice about it is that it has Velcro all down each side and you can open the Velcro and then stick your hands in without having to unzip the entire system. Um, so having the access or, or lining up your your lines within like those those Velcro pockets where you can so you know, like, okay, if I put my hand in this pocket, the IV line should be right there, um, and being able to feel for that. So 
that's in our supply system for um, the medical battalion, and I prefer to use that. If you don't have it and you have to wrap them up in blankets, then you know you just have to maneuver. You have to know where your lines are, and when you wrap them up, to know that I need to gain access to my IV lines or be able to feel at least, you know, reach in and feel, and make sure it didn't come loose and blood isn't going everywhere or whatever it is. So um, that's just kind of how I, I go. So by it. When, then, when you set up your patient, your lines aren't coming out the hole where his face is sticking. You put them kind of perpendicular through the Velcro and then close them off. Yeah, you can, I mean, you can just line it, you know, where it's, it's near that Velcro pocket. Um, and then the other thing is if you don't have that Apple system, you can also use um, some extra corrugated tubing from your, your vent that usually comes with an extra piece of plastic. Slice it down the middle, put all the lines into that, and then wrap it up, and then you know all of your lines are secured in one, one area instead of all over the place. But the biggest thing is to make sure lines aren't hanging loose or, you know, your vent tubing's not out and just hanging. Because when you move your patient, so the movement of the patient's always a critical time. Because, you know, when you're stationary, you know, you, you have more control over what's going on and, and where everything is. But the movement, especially in our environment, you might have, you know, for us, some Marines that are standing by, like, hey, can you help me move this patient? They're not medical. They don't really care about what's, you know, the tubing, or they don't even know what, what all of that is. They're grabbing that patient and trying to get as fast as they can to the helicopter or whatever vehicle you're using. And they may pull things and not realize it, <laughs> or maybe do it and not tell you. <laughs> so that's always, you know, that movement, that transfer is always a critical time. And so you don't want anything hanging out or loose for someone to inadvertently grab it and pull it out and, and then you don't know until it's too late. So I know for ground medics, we teach them to reassess after every movement. Do you yes. do the same thing? Absolutely. Okay. So that's one of the main things, you know, I don't care if you move this person in two feet. <laughs> Make sure you reassess, you know, go through, a, doing a good primary survey um, where you don't have to intervene. It takes five, ten seconds, you know, just to run through it. Make sure I've got airway, breathing's good, circulation's still good. You know, it's not, there's no massive bleeding anywhere. Um, and then all my lines are good and in place order nobody nothing has been you know check your lines look at it make sure nothing's been pulled make sure your vent tubing is still connected um i talk about vent tubing a lot because that's kind of what we do but uh you know if you're just bagging the patient or whatever you know make sure that you're you know connected correctly and everything's working right so yes that reassessment is when i fly personally and, and again in our environment that's all i'm doing is just a constant head to toe if i if i'm not doing something actively, intervening, giving them medications, I'm right back to doing my head-to-toe, ABCD, ABCD, so. So there's never a time when you're bored, you're trying to find something to do. Nope. Yeah. <laughs> never, never. I, and even if I'm doing something like, I'm trying to write something down and document, I'll even put my hand on top of the chest just so I can feel that rise and fall as I'm writing, because, you know, my biggest, I'm very paranoid that I'm going to miss something, you know, in the helicopter you can't hear. So if my my vent's alarming or my monitor is alarming, I'm not going to know that. I'm not going to hear it. So I have to not only look at the monitor, I don't like to always rely on just, you know, my electronics, but looking at my patient and making sure that it corresponds with what I'm seeing on the monitor or, you know, making sure that I didn't miss anything. So, yeah. And then if you're, you know, you, you lose your hearing, you might lose your vision as well because if you're in the dark, then... It's very hard to see. So again, that feel is it's huge. So 
So I'm constantly, you know, feeling the expand of the, um, the lungs and the, the chest and, you know, feeling for any fluids or liquids that, you know, they're bleeding out. Um, it's big. I'm never bored. Okay. <laughs> it's 100% on the whole time. Before you actually get on the bird or the helicopter, um, do you do anything different as far as actually securing lines, securing the tubes differently or more securely? I just, again, I make sure that it's all within um, whatever I package the patient in. So if it's if it's apples, it's all within the, the inside of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if it's blankets, you know, that when you put the, the straps on the litter, that it's all contained within. Because if it's just, if it's outside of the straps or outside of the blankets or the, the apples, then it's mm-hmm. going to just be hanging there. Someone's going to grab it for sure. Okay. Um, so the security, is, there's not anything like specific. I just make sure it's all contained within where it needs to be. Um, I do, I mean, we'll we'll mark the lines too so we can see, um, you know, you might put like a, a piece of tape or, or something that signifies that this is my IV line or this is my art line, you know, somehow. Um, but, you know, big Sharpie pen, whatever, um, just to identify the difference between the lines. Now, I know uh, you don't do the C-CAT, the, the Stratovac, but are you using the Smeed and, you know, putting pumps and vents on there? Because a lot of us haven't seen the Smeed before. I saw it in Cincinnati, but that thing, this huge erector set that kind of sits over the patient. So when I was in Afghanistan, that's what we used. That was in our, our AMOL or our supply system is the Smeed. I actually, I really liked it because it was very simple to connect to the army litters that we use. Um, it, it was specifically made for the monitors and the vent, um, had a place to put your oxygen. Uh, some people didn't like it because it was added weight, but I found that it kept it off the patient. It was all contained in one area. And the other nice thing about it is I could swivel the monitor. So if I ended up in a situation, like I said before, where I wasn't placed in the aircraft where I thought I would be, and that, you know, if I may have positioned my monitor because I, I thought I was going to be on the right side, and then it turns out I'm on the left side, I could pull the little lever and then it swivels, you know, 360 degrees to wherever I'm at. So I, I liked it, but they're not around anymore. So yeah. <laughs> or I think they're on the, the CCAT uses them, but maybe. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know it does make uh, makes it a little easier when you have a bunch of different things to attach to at the pumps and the drips and the, yeah. the vents. But. Yeah, and it just keeps it off the patient. A lot of times I've seen guys putting putting the monitors, putting the pleurovax, putting everything directly on the patient, and then they go running off. Um, stuff is not secured down. Right. And, uh, and not to mention, you're just putting all this weight on somebody's chest who's already having a hard time breathing. Yeah, it, it gets to be a little... Um you have to be very strategic where you put your monitors if you don't have something like the Smeed. Um, it, sometimes you do have to put it on top of the patient. You try to avoid any injuries, obviously. Uh, one thing I learned is to take an extra blanket and fold it into a square for padding. And then if you have to put the monitor on top of the patient, then you put the, the little square blanket down and then you put the monitor on top and that just creates a little extra room between that and the patient. And then, you know, oxygen bottles between the legs, we do that a lot. However, you know, that, that will pull the heat from the patient. So you have to make sure if you do that, I see it a lot in training, like people just throw the, the O2 bottle between the legs. 
without thinking about that. So if you have the oxygen bottle between the legs, make sure you are wrapping that up in something, a blanket or whatever, so it's not gonna pull the heat from, because O2 bottles are cold, so. Uh, yeah, you, you have to, it, it's really based on, you know, what you have. Um, if you have, if the person has an amputation, you know, you have a little extra room to put your, your monitoring, your equipment there, but the biggest thing is placing your equipment in a way that makes sense if you have to do it that way. So if they're vented, making sure the vent is closer to the patient's head, you know, the monitor can kind of be anywhere, um, just you need to be able to see it. And then uh, the suction, usually they'll put the suction on top too, but you have to think if I don't have room for something, then suction doesn't have to go on top because you're not actively using it all the time. So those are, these are some of the things, it sounds, I don't know, maybe common sense, but when you get to that point, and, and I run scenarios with my guys all the time, it's that's the one sticking point is they don't know how to package the patient, and I get a lot of questions about how do you do this, especially if you have multiple monitors or equipment, so um, it's huge. It's, mm -hmm. it's a big thing. It's kind of like the handoff where nobody really talks about it, but it's one of the bigger things in patient care, so. So when you run one of those scenarios, what does that kind of look like when you're running uh, your nurses or corpsmen through one of those scenarios? So we will do, um, we'll act like we're at the rule two and they've just come out of damage control surgery or damage control resuscitation. So there'll be a doctor um, and a nurse that may not know really what's going on because that's, that's pretty common <laughs> in those situations. Everyone's kind of running around and, and you know a lot of people don't know a lot about the patient. So we set it up in a way to where they get very limited information. So they really have to do that pre-flight assessment and be in depth, but we also put them on a time limit because if an aircraft is there and waiting for you to take the patient, they're not gonna sit there forever. So you gotta be able to do a thorough primary assessment, secondary assessment, and plan what equipment you need to bring, medications, how much oxygen you need to bring um, within a certain time frame. And that's, that's the biggest part for them. And then that transfer. So how do you transfer this patient? How do you carry them? You know, we put them on a helicopter or whatever vehicle we can get for our training. Um, can't always get helicopters, so we'll do a 997 or whatever it is and throw them in there, make sure that they do that reassessment once they get into their aircraft, and then uh, take them through some scenarios while we're moving around. So we'll have something happen to the patient, whether it's, you know, airway issue or, um, you know, they lose blood and they have to catch that and then intervene appropriately so okay. um so another super important point other than in route care is the actual handover yes either between the ground medic and the flight medic or from the physicians to the flight medic for a transfer um how should this how do you want this to occur so what I teach and what I've always used was the missed report. So the mechanism of injury, the injury sustained, their signs and symptoms, and then the treatments and the interventions that you did. I found that to be the easiest and, the, and quickest and most thorough way to hand over a patient in, in what we do. Um, and, it, and it covers everything. I always say that your, your care is only as good as your handoff. And by that, I mean you could have done the most amazing care in the most stressful environment, but if you sound like you don't, you know, you're not, your thoughts aren't organized, you're all over the place when you hand off that patient, you're automatically going to be, I mean, that's human nature. They're gonna judge you 
based on your handoff of how well you took care of your patient, which isn't fair, but that's just the way it is. Um, and on the flip side of that, you could have been a complete disaster taking care of your patient, but walked in and gave a you know, rocking report and everyone's like, oh, wow, they're great. So it's, you really have to make sure that your handoff is, is organized and it covers everything that the receiving team needs to know. So, I mean, things can be detrimental to your patient if you don't report, you know, what you've done. You know, for instance, if you gave them a certain medication right before you hand it over, but you forgot to mention that, and they give them another medic or the same medication, you know, now this person's getting double dosed and that can be detrimental to your patient. So it's it's really important that that you're able to do that and do it accurately. A great handoff, you'll have no questions. And the receiving team will have no questions for you. So you know that you've done well in that and that's what you need to strive for. So if, if I'm doing a handoff to you, what do you want to hear from me? So the biggest thing is I want to know what happened to the patient, mm -hmm. so that mechanism of injury. Um, what injuries did they sustain? So not only the injuries during the mechanism of injury, but the injuries also during your care. So the initial injury may have been an amputation of whatever extremity, um, but during your care, they also had attention pneumothorax that you had to intervene on, or they lost their airway, whatever it is. Um, so I consider those significant injuries as well, so I want to hear about that. Um, sometimes you you know people will flip the S and the T. So when I when I talk about the injuries, they'll say the treatment and the interventions at the same time. So um, you know the person had a a below the knee amputation of the right extremity, and we put a tourniquet on, etc. So they they put the the injuries and the treatment together. Um, you can do it that way as well. But that's I want to know the significant events. I don't need to know all of your vital signs. I want to know what their current vital sign is, and I want to know if there were any trends where they dropped, you know, anything significant that you had to do an intervention mm -hmm. on. Um, so if they're just trending, they're trending upwards or trending downwards, you know, stable, not stable, yeah, things like that. Yes. So, I mean, if there was one point where, you know, they were, they were trending or, you know, 120 over 60 or somewhere in that ballpark the whole time, but then all of a sudden they went down and they became, um, hypotensive, you know, 70 or whatever, okay, what happened there? Obviously that was a significant event. Well, it, we discovered we had attention with our eyes. We did a needle decompression or we put a chest tube in or whatever it is. And then you know, that's that's what I want to know. Um, the medications that you've given, uh, you know, how, how long ago did you give the dose, um, time, how much fluids did you give? Uh, there's something else I was thinking of too. Like but, tube depths? Yeah, if they're vented, so that's important. I want to know the settings that you're using, um, where the tube is at the teeth. We always say measure the, the ET tube at the teeth versus some people say the lips, but the lips swell or they move, so that's not as accurate as if you say at the teeth. So that's that's a big thing is a lot of people don't think about that. Mm -hmm. So, you know, whoever intubates does their thing, and a lot, you know, the nurse or the corpsman takes over, they don't think to ask where where on the, the ET tube was the placement because that's part of the dope algorithm, right, is dislodgement. So I need to know if I'm having issues with my airway or my vented patient, did it get dislodged? Well, how do I know that if I didn't know what the initial measurement was to begin with? So it's really important and I, don't, I find that it's not really trained a lot or, or talked about a lot. Um, and their level of consciousness, that's a big thing, especially if they're vented. 
I want to know what they what was their level of consciousness initially and during your care you know if they lost that um, GCS scores are great you know okay. it so so I think as you you're talking about the innovation the two this is where we can kind of talk about that fill in the bulb with saline so we don't do that. <laughs> yeah, it's one of those myths that it sounds like a sexy thing to do as you're going up in the air. And it's actually been proven to uh, not be as effective. But there are some issues with that if you're going to do that. Yes. So they, it was found with a study that you can actually cause damage to the trachea. Um, you know, the balloon ruptures, you have the saline or the, the flu, whatever fluid you put into it. So it's not... It's not recommended in most protocols and in most of the airy bag protocols as well, even on the civilian sector, they don't recommend doing that. So what would you do then? Do you carry some kind of cuff manometer or cuffle or something like that? Yeah, so that's a lot of times, um, I, I know in the civilian sector they do carry that and you're supposed to monitor that and, and record it. Um, for us, we don't have that specific tool, but you know, testing that balloon that's, that's hanging out um, and making sure that's inflated, and just and just watching. If you have um, a low pressure alarm, you can assume that you know either it's deflating or um, high pressure. I mean, it should be a high pressure alarm if you have your if it's inflated appropriately. So it's really at that point is if it's deflating and you're losing. So is that something pressure. you just add to your uh, your reassessments? Yes. Okay. Yep. So when I do my head to toe, my A B C D E, you know, in the breathing part of it, I'm looking at, you know, I'll test that little balloon, make sure it's good to go, look at my um, monitor, my settings, and uh, and tidal CO2 is what we monitor with if they're, if they're vented, but, you know, your SVO2 and that type of thing, so. So I know we're, we brought you in here to talk about the 10th prolonged field care capability um, in prep for flight, but really it's prep for evac. And so I know you've done a lot of rotary wing, but you've done a lot of ground as well, right? So again, with, with the Marines and the Navy, we don't have a designated medevac unit or a designated aircraft. So we, when we talk in rack care, a lot of times we think of the air, but it's really any vehicle that's available for you. It's just treating a patient in movement, going from one place to another, and that can be a helicopter, it could be a vehicle on the ground, a 997, an LCAG, I mean, it's just, it's anything to get them moving. Um, so yeah, it's, again, that, that planning phase is huge and the, the preparation phase is, is big because you just don't know what you're going to get. We call it lift of opportunity, so whatever is available and around. And we've been spoiled the last 16 years with having that air, air capability and, you know, we call a nine line in and we're not waiting too long to get a bird over. Um, but I think for future endeavors, we're looking at things that are you know, larger AORs and a lot more time to either transport the patient or get to the patient. So um, we have to think in terms of, and, you know, if we don't have that air superiority, so it might not be the air, it might be <laughs> a lot of different things that, you know, are just moving and being able to plan for that. And so when you're planning for a movement, um, you brought up earlier when we were talking before the podcast about nausea for the uh, the caregiver, so mm -hmm. you want to elaborate on that here. So, and that's and that's part of my training too. Is that we will designate in the Navy a, a nurse um, as an in route care nurse with pretty limited experience in an ICU or an ER. And our and our ERs in the military hospitals aren't very high acuity, so you don't really get 
a lot of that critical care experience. Uh, they may or may not have gone to the JET course, the Joint Interact Care course in Fort Rucker, and suddenly they find themselves in a situation where they're the in-route care nurse for you know, their role too. Um, but they may have never have gotten on a helicopter before that point. So what I want to do is, you know, part of this training is getting them exposed to different aircraft, different helicopters, getting them on the um, up in the air or in a vehicle, taking care of that patient and seeing what it's like when you have that movement. You're not focused on, you know, the horizon or whatever else but you're focused on something else within the aircraft that always, you know, if, if someone's going to get nauseous or airsick, that's usually when it happens. So um, my big thing is that you have to know as a provider, how are you going to react physiologically in that aircraft or the vehicle or whatever it is uh, before you have the actual patient? Because a lot of us found that, you know, the first time we're flying is with that critical patient. And I don't even know, I don't even know how to speak to the, the crew because I've never been on an aircraft. I don't, you know, I, they didn't bring me a headset, so I'm doing hand signals and you know, different kind of things. So, yeah, it's a, that preparation phase. You know, if you're in a unit and you know that this is a possible mission, is you know, training your guys to, to be able to do this, getting them on those different aircraft or vehicles, or you know, looking ahead and looking at the environment we might possibly go into, and, and how would you deal with that? And, you know, right. what are you going to use to move your patient? How are you going to do it and plan for it? So, right. I mean, even though we might use you know, a variety of different uh, vehicles, could be you know, air, land, or sea, packaging your patients, the missed reports, that type of planning and communication, that is going to be constant regardless, correct? Yes. Yep. Always. Always have it in the back of your head. Um, and like I said, always be two steps ahead. So... Never, I always train my guys, never look at your patient as being stable. Always look at them as what can go wrong, what are the worst case scenarios, and how do I plan for that? So when I have them doing that assessment, when you're looking at the airway, you know, they may be intubated, everything's great, the placement's good, you know, the vent settings are great, it's working for that patient, but you gotta look at it and go, okay, what can go wrong at this point? You know, go down that dope algorithm in your head, and if it's dislodged, what do I have to do? What are my rescue airways? How am I gonna deal with this? You know, if it's obstructed, how do I deal with this? Oh, I need suction. I need to bring my inline suction catheter. <laughs> a lot yep. of people forget that. Um, you know, pneumothorax. Oh, I need my, my needle D's or chest tubes or whatever it is. So you got to think that way as you're doing your assessment. Um, to, so you have to plan because we have to bring everything we need on with us. So if I forget my needle decompression needles or if I forget just whatever it is, however I'm going to fix that situation, and I find myself in that situation, you're in a helicopter or you're in a vehicle and you're not anywhere near anybody else, so, you know, how are you to deal with that? People have forgotten the Ambu bag. You know, what's the first thing we do if we have an airway issue on a vent is we take them off the vent and we start bagging. Well, if you don't bring your bag <laughs> and your vent's dying on you, which has had on, you know, I've, I've had a flight where as soon as I got on the aircraft, the vent died. So if I didn't have my Ambu bag, that would have been a really bad day. Um, but yes, it's, it's all about that planning phase and being two steps ahead always. So. Do you ever have issues where you don't have enough drugs, you don't have a reversal or, you know, something like that? I've never had that issue, yeah. but I mean, you definitely can run into it. And that's why we always say you need a plan for, if your your flight's a half hour, you need to plan for an hour and a half um, with your medications and your oxygen and that whole thing. Uh, 
you know, bring your reversals for your, your benzos and the um, narcotics, usually the opioids, what we're using. So bring those those reversals that, you know, um, yeah. It's um, do you do anything with uh, your patients as far as if you're in the air? We don't talk to very many flight medics. Most of us are ground guys, but... Um, you know, and they have some kind of delirium and you're in the air, that could be a dangerous situation. Do you ever tie their hands down? Do you give them extra sedation? Anything like that? Um, I, I personally fly with my patients paralyzed Yeah. <laughs> because again, with our, our aircraft, it's not set up for medevac. It could be set up for, you know, defending ourselves. And so there's a 50 cal in there and they're, they're firing that 50 cal off. There's a lot of stimulus in that our environments and so I to avoid that situation mm. um, I prefer them to be paralyzed and obviously appropriately sedated with that because it's that's you know, I'm already in, a, in an aircraft that's not set up for a medevac and now I have a patient who's flailing and you know my biggest fear if they're vented is they're gonna pull that airway so I, I you know in the back of a 60 I can't the way the patient's usually positioned, I can't get behind the head. So if he pulls the airway, it's, it's going to be, again, another bad day trying to, to handle that. Um, yeah, so it's, it's, it's just a difficult, very stressful situation. Um, and, and the reason why I came up with that training again, because it is a disservice to the provider and to that patient to throw people in these expect to have them go into these environments and just know how to do their job because they were working in an IC or ER for a few months. So is that course becoming more standardized now after you've been doing it for a few years? How long have you been doing it? I started it two years ago and um, I have a great team that's been helping me out and it really was meant for my battalion and for the companies that, that have, are going downrange in the plank. But the word kind of got out to the other units and so I had a lot of different units on the East Coast um, and also in Okinawa and some of the wing units as well that are asking for the training. Um, again, it's not an official course, yeah. <laughs> it's just training. but. We have created um, a mix of didactics and also scenarios and coordinating, you know, aircraft and that type of thing into it. So these guys really get some kind of a experience and know what to expect. And I did it solely on my experiences. So um, it was easy for me to create it because I knew what I did wrong and what I wanted to know and the lessons learned. So I, that's how I sort of laid out that whole, the structure of the training that we do. Um, if somebody wanted to go to that training, uh, how would they go about doing it? So right now, we and we've had a lot of, because it, the word kind of spread, I have I have corpsmen from other marine units that aren't even attached with the medical battalions or, or the air wings that are asking to come over and do it. And as long as they can get the time off to, to come over, then they're all welcome. Mm -hmm. So I... You know, I'll travel two people and, and teach them. I have no problem with it. I, I'm a big person, I'm a big proponent on training and being prepared and not putting people in really bad situations like we've done a lot in the past. And so um, as long as people want to hear me talk, I'll keep talking. <laughs> yeah. How will they get in contact with you? Um, they can get in contact with me with uh, either by email or um, phone number. I'm I'm on my way out of the military, so okay. um, or they can get a hold of my team as well. Okay, um, and that's at First Medical Battalion. Okay, and that's Camp a Pendleton. Camp Pendleton on the West Coast. Okay, okay, we can put that contact in the 
show notes. Yeah, we're also going to have to uh, name drop the course that we're at right now, the soft austere critical care course. So we have her over here helping us out. This is the second or third time you've been out here to help us to do exactly what we're talking about today, to kind of talk to our students who are non-medics going through this uh, prolonged field care training uh, about handovers, about uh, in-flight issues and everything else. So we'll put the uh, info for the SOFAC course as well on there. So if anybody's interested, if you're uh, a soft non-medic, you can come to this one a month long course. We have an OML, of course, and if there's seats available, um, we can try to work you in. Yes, I will. This is another plug. Just having been involved with this this course, it's been amazing. And, and, and the fact that it's set up for non-medics, I mean, Mike Corman, I have a Corman here actually going through the training, and he said himself that he's learned more in the few days he's been here than he has in most of his um, training that we've offered for you know our, our quad zeros or 8404 um, it's a phenomenal course and these guys walk away with so much medical knowledge that this alone would, would help out the majority of the you know 68 whiskeys or the quad zero foreman um, around it's it's great to see it come yeah. together we appreciate it. I don't. Th- I don't know if people notice this, but we're in a garage right now. We're going to put up some pictures. We're in our one of our austere clinics. We have heaters blowing because it's you know thirty degrees outside. It, it, and this is what our students uh, kind of operate in while we're here. It's realistic. <laughs> um, did you want to talk about the uh, JTS or the Committee on In Route Casualty Care? That's where I actually met you in San Antonio. So. Um, yes, I mean it's so for. The future for me, I'll be working on one of the process improvement teams with the JTS, um, part of the co-work. Uh, we've had a lot of, in the, the past couple of years, I think a lot of committees stand up on in care and, and recognize the importance of it and the problems that could potentially happen if we do you know, end up in a larger scale conflict. Um, so the CORC has, has been trying to develop CPGs for uh, the in-rat care um, environments and um, JTS is you know, it's a system that's always trying to improve trauma within the military. So I'm uh, looking forward to, to continue working with different groups. Yeah, I think it's important that we talked about that because in the prolonged field care, that 10th core capability, uh, prep for flight, prep for evac, we haven't really touched on it much at all. One of the reasons why is because there's a whole other committee that's, you know, focused on in-route care. So that's prepping your patient, that's in-flight care, that's Stratovac off the continent, that's care on ships. So it would just be uh, ridiculous for us to try to recreate that when you have a whole committee focused on that effort. That's it for today's podcast. Be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.